But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who walk in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. And they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Well, this is a text that um, has been popularized and made very well known in popular culture because of Handel's Messiah, but it has some critical lines there that are well known during the Christmas season. For us, a child is born. Those names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These are the things that are scrawled in gold upon various fabrics around your house, probably at this time of year. But there is a phrase early on in verse 2 that is critical. There is a comparison and there is a radical change that is being talked about in this passage In verse 2, it says this, The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. There is no greater change in comparison between that which is dark and that which is light. To give you some historical context to the prophet Isaiah and what he is speaking to during this time, in the first couple chapters of Isaiah, he has been speaking to a people who are fairly, fairly don't want to hear what he has to say. They are ignoring what he has to say. In chapter 9, it actually begins, but there. It literally, in the Hebrew, it is nevertheless, or however. In other words, which means you have to look at verse, or chapter 8 in order to understand what is going on in chapter 9. In chapter 8, if you were to read chapter 8 of Isaiah, you would see that he is prophesying to them that they're about to enter into a season where they'll be distressed and hungry. They will roam through the land looking for anything they can eat. When they are famished, they'll become enraged and they'll look up at God and they'll curse God as their king. The end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 talks about a people who are living in darkness. They're angry at God, they're despairing, and they're gloomy because of their sin, and because of what God said is going to come upon them. What Isaiah is prophesying is that Assyria, which is a nasty national force, is going to come upon them. It has already come upon their brothers in Israel, and it's going to come upon Judah within a couple decades. And so there are people who are walking in darkness, he says. There are people walking in darkness spiritually. They have rejected God. They serve Molech. They serve false gods. They sacrifice their children. 
They enjoy the temple prostitutes. In the midst of of political darkness, their kings are terrible leaders. They are tepid leaders. And they are going to be facing, within a few decades, terrible physical darkness in which they will be hungry and distressed, in which they will be dragged off into enslavement. And the language of the scripture here, when it talks about darkness, goes far darker than we normally even imagine darkness. We think of a physical darkness as it has gone outside even in the midst of our service. But what it's talking about here is a deathly darkness, is literally what it talks about in the Hebrew. A deathly darkness, the kind of the shadow of death, as it talks about in Psalm 23, will hover over them. But that's what life will be like. And so that's what the context of this great prophecy is speaking into. A people who are living in darkness, a people who are engaged in darkness, and a people who are about to face even more significant darkness. And we look at our worlds, and that is the way it is. Not so much necessarily that this is a darker time than any other time in history. There have been many dark times in history, but all times in history, because we are a people who have thrown ourselves into sin and sinfulness, the world is dark. A brief look at the news will tell you that the world is dark. It is a terrible place, right? So we look around our world, look at our place politically. We are divided in enormous ways in this season. We are, as we reported last night, a woman purposely ran over a young girl simply because of the color of her skin. And darkness isn't just what's going on out there, as if there is a world out there that is separate from us, but darkness is actually something that we feel far more even internally in our own lives. We weep over the mess of our grown children. We grieve the friend who is caught up in addiction, and we grieve even more because she won't acknowledge it. We grieve the ongoing questions that reverberates within our own souls. Why do I feel so unlovely, and why am I so lonely? So many of you men feel crushed under anxiety and depression. We weep over little ones who were lost in the womb, and we wonder, where is God in all this? Where is the light in the midst of this darkness? But the text is saying this, that yes, even in the midst of a world of darkness, Isaiah 9 is nothing less than this. It is God snapping a match in a world of darkness, saying that there is a hope that we can look forward to, and the hope, he says, is a light. Hope comes from seeing the light, and Isaiah 9 is a prophecy pointing forward. In the midst of a dark people, in a dark place, Isaiah is giving us a little candlelight, a light of what is coming, Do you see the light? That is what Isaiah is asking. And when Jesus shows up, he makes it very, very clear that the candle that Isaiah struck on that day in this prophecy is speaking about himself. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So do you see the light of Jesus in Isaiah 9? That's my desire tonight. I don't know why I had this particular song in my head all week, but it's it's an old Appalachian folk song. You may be familiar with it. It is a haunting melody. Its lyric is actually not that great. 
But its melody is really haunting, and it has one profound line. It goes like this, I wonder as I wander. I wonder as I wander. And that song, it's haunting, and that one line is beautiful. As we wander in a world of darkness, do you actually still have any kind of wonder? Is there a light that flickers in front of you that gives you wonder and hope in this world? You see, where we lose wonder, we lose hope. So I want to give you just very briefly tonight three reflections from Isaiah 9 that will come with questions for us. Three reflections from this passage that point towards the light of Jesus. The first reflection is this that I'd like to cons- you to consider with me as we look at the light is consider with me that in Jesus the victory of the light has over darkness. The light is victorious over darkness. What verses 1 through 5 is trying to give us, and then again in verses 7 of Isaiah chapter 9, is trying to communicate to us a, gra- a dramatic reversal, right? There is no greater comparison between darkness and light, and it's giving us an incredible comparison between darkness and light here. There is gloom in verse 1, but there is rejoicing in verse 3. There is distress in verse 1, but there is joy Exceeding joy, it says, unspeakable joy in verse 3. There is oppression going on of the the land of Naphtali in Zebulun in verse 1. But in verse 3, what do we see? People have their oppression broken. The yoke is broken and removed from them. Darkness of verse 2 is turned to light later on in verse 2. And the shadow of death is overcome by verse 6. And we get even more specific in some various places. For example, in verse 5, it gives us this great and beautiful imagery of what God will do. Is He is not simply just coming to put an end to all that are bad things, but he's coming to bring peace, as Andy talked about it on Sunday. A shalom. It says this in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now that seems rather drastic. It seems rough, but it actually it's a beautiful scene. The scene that is being depicted there in verse 5 is the end of a battle scene when the battle of the king has been won and victorious, and all that is left to do is to take all his vanquished enemies' swords and spears and arrows and put them into a huge pile and burn them up. Puts an end to all that is bringing war in this world. When the light of Jesus comes, he will put an end to conflict itself. And he brings peace that we desperately need. Every mechanism for tyranny, for war, will be put into a giant and eternal bonfire of God's victory. Verse 7 says this, the increase of this peace will never end. This is not a peace that comes and goes. You know, there's a place there in verse 1 that is confusing to us that because we're not Israelites, we don't necessarily understand it, where it says that this peace and this glory will come from the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And what that's referring to is this particular geographic location between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. And the peoples that lived there were the peoples of Naphtali and Zebulun. Now, whenever the Assyrians or the Babylonians wanted to take Israel, the place that they had to go through was the land between Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. In other words, the first people to get crushed in Israel were always the people of Zebulun and Naphtali. They were always the people who would be first steamrolled, who were always the people whose lives were most at threat. They were the frontier of Israel in which the northern powers that were always coming to invade Israel would steamroll through first. 
And often, actually, what the Assyrians did is eventually, in order to exterminate these people, they actually ultimately either killed everyone in the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, or they dragged off everyone who was an ethnic Jew or Israelite in that place and replaced them with other peoples from their territory so that everyone who was known, it's called Gentile the nations, everybody knew that the people who lived in Zebulun and Naphtali by the time of Jesus were half-breeds or Gentiles. And yet what's beautiful is that becomes a glorious place because where's the place where Jesus will hail from? He will start his ministry in the land of Galilee and the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, and he will bring peace. And the beautiful thing for the land of Zebulun and Naphtali is that their peace will never end, it says in verse 7. That once the peace of this king comes and it is established ultimately in this world, what's it say? It's an everlasting peace. And in verse 7 it says it keeps going. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. They don't ever have to wonder, is there going to be a greater kingdom that's going to come and disrupt our lives again? The empire of God's peace and grace will never finish expanding. We will know an ever-increasing experience of his triumph, forever ascending, forever getting larger, forever accelerating, and forever intensifying. That's what heaven is. A peace that won't go away. And not only will it not go away, but we will spend all of eternity moving into greater and greater depths of the, of the peace that God actually provides for us. And so here's my call for you to ponder and reflect with me this, mo- this evening. Consider with me that in light winning over darkness, let me ask you this question. Have you given yourself over to cynical withdrawal in this world? Have you lost a vision of a kingdom without end that is perfectly at peace? Do we merely mock the Miss Americas who long for world peace and laugh and go, that's, that's for children? Or do we actually still have a hope of what God may actually do in this world? Let me ask you this, have the hurts of your life and the hurts of this year perhaps sent you scurrying behind a wall of protectionism, a wall encased by the shell of materialism and selfishness, in which your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller in order to protect yourself from hopelessness? Tish Warren wrote this in the New York Times. She said, our response to the wrongness of the world and frankly the wrongness of ourselves can often lead to an unhealthy escapism And we can turn to the holidays, yes, even Christmas, as an anesthesia from the pain as much as anything else. So, let me ask you this. Has your hope lost its wonder in such a way that it has given given way to cynicism? When When you lose wonder, the wonder of hope, and you give way to cynicism, your world simply becomes small. It's a small vision in which Christmas mornings and the joys of your children, that's as big a vision as you can have for life. Now listen, that's wonderful and I love that. But your children will disappoint you in the reaction tomorrow, right? They will play with cardboard boxes more than the $100 gifts that they are given. Listen, if our world becomes that, that small and simply center around the excitement of our children or the kiss of an amorous partner on New Year's Eve, then that is a world that is too small. That is a vision that is selfish. That's all it is. But Jesus comes and gives us this message. That he comes to give us blessings, as we sang earlier tonight, as far as the curse is found. So all the places that have been hard and difficult for you this year. 
the places that have threatened to bring cynicism into your life and to cause you to lose a vision of hope. Actually, those are all the places that Jesus says that place of hurt and woundedness, of brokenness, both you and the world around you is actually a place that I say, I will bring my blessings there. I will make things new there. And so we acknowledge the darkness, yes. We are not optimistic people in the sense of just in a vapid way, but we allow that grief to drive us to a longing for something more, the peace that Jesus promises us. Now, if you're like me, and you see the darkness, and you see it compared to the way things are supposed to be, the way the light of God's kingdom looks like in the future, and we know I'm supposed to participate that in that in some way, shape, or form. I should do something to bring about light into this world, right? Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? And if I'm a really good humanitarian, then I will do everything in my power to try to push back the darkness, and that is certainly true. But if we look to a man's efforts and man's abilities, then that will lead to just simply more darkness in our lives. That is actually what's going on in Isaiah chapter 9. That Isaiah is prophesying to a people that when he has come to him and said, listen, bad things are coming, the response of the, of the Jerusalem king and the Jewish king at this time is to say, I'll, I'll turn to Egypt. I'll turn to our own devices. So much so it says that when they're angry at God, it says in their distress, they look to the things of earth to help them. Meaning they look to the answers of what earthly wisdom and earthly power and earthly kings can provide. And frankly, it just simply makes things worse. That's when their darkness goes from a deep darkness to a very, very deep darkness. You may be familiar with the song. It's been used in various commercials throughout the world. About the years, but there was, it came from a famous concert in 1985, a live aid concert, in which a bunch of celebrities sang this song. You may remember it. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day. So let's start giving. Now, in his, as he is wont to do, there was a one particular singer who popped this balloon in this self delusion after the concert. Bob Dylan, after the concert, when meeting with the media, said he was uncomfortable with the song. And when asked why, he simply said this, humankind cannot save itself. And all our attempts to do so have simply led to greater darkness. Here's your second reflection. Reflect with me and consider with me the zeal of the light of God. In verse 7, the place where we end our reading. The zeal of the Lord of hosts would do this. This vision of hope, of peace, and beauty, and which all the weapons of war are piled into a fire and done away with for all eternity, when joy is just forever abounding and peace is forever abounding. Who will accomplish that? Will you do it? Will I do it? No. You and I will not achieve the victory of God in this world. We don't know how to serve him that well, even, even when our hearts are really, really into it. What is it that secures the future of the world? It is the zeal of the Lord of hosts. That word zeal there literally means that God's passion means that he is red-faced for this. That the blood rushes to his ears. That he longs to bring this peace and this joy and this beauty to this world. That we have a God of great passion. He is not simply sitting over in the corner. 
God is one of great emotion. The Hebrew word for this is the same word that is used for the love that burns in the heart of a bride and a groom for one another, it says in Song of Psalms. And Isaiah 42, it compares with God, a warrior psyching himself up for battle, saying he stirs up his zeal. This is who our God is. The God who comes and he is passionate about bringing this peace and this joy to put an end to all that is dark in this world. And the victory of light is entirely won by Jesus. And that means this. The victory is all of grace. And it means you can rest. The language all through this text, it speaks of this peace and this joy being a gift versus merit. So, for example, in verse 4, it actually talks about this. It gives this obscure reference for Israelites. It says, for as in the days of Midian. Now, that's a, a phrase pointing back to the days of the judges when a guy named Gideon led out a battle, an army, to defeat the, battle, the group of Moab, Moabites who were uh, oppressing the people of Israel. And yet God says, Gideon, I'm going to win this victory, not by your power, but by mine. And so what he does is he sends most of the army of Israel home. And in other words, what's the point that Isaiah 9 is pointing back to is that God wins the victory, we don't. Salvation never comes through human ability, but it always comes through God's grace. If Christmas is just a beautiful story of how, that inspires us of how we should live, then it's not that beautiful at all. If it's just an inspiring story about how I should live, it's not that inspiring. It's actually a crushing burden. It's depressing. Go do more to try to save the world. But if Christmas happened, if it was news that we receive, not news that we create, if Jesus was born, a child born for us, if he lived for us and he died for us, if he paid the debt that we owe on the cross to defeat death in all darkness in this world, then it actually is inspiring. Then it actually really is good news and it actually is beautiful. Jesus is saying in all of this, we, us, will win the war. And what he means by that is, I'll win the war. And you'll enjoy the blessings and the spoils of the war. You walk on the battlefield, but only after the battle has been won. And your job is simply to find your little piece of the battlefield and pick up one sword from this world and put it into the bonfire of God's victory. That is grace. God defeats sin and Satan and death and despair and darkness. And you don't win this gift. He wins it for you. It is a gift and you don't pay for it. So that when we are finally glorified and we are experiencing that endless experience of God's joy and peace in heaven for all of eternity, we'll sit around and we'll simply say this, isn't he awesome? And isn't he glorious? This is the triumph of his passion, of his longing and of his desire. Third reflection. One last reflection this evening Consider with me the character of the light. Verse 6 is the most famous verse in this passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is four terms, boom, boom, boom. There are 250 names and titles given for the Lord scattered from Genesis to Revelation, but this is the most we see in one particular setting. Four tight, concise package that appears nowhere else in the Bible, but here we get a description of who the Messiah will be, who the light that is to come will look like, that he encapsulates the totality of what the work of Jesus will be. 
And it actually runs at a very militaristic format. Wonderful Counselor actually refers to an incredible and brilliant military strategist. Mighty God refers to him being a mighty warrior who will win the battle. Everlasting Father is an old school term that refers to God when he defeated the Egyptians. And he calls the people of Israel his children and says, I am your father because I have won the right by winning the victory. Jesus says, because I will win the victory, then you'll be as my children and I'll be as you, to you as a father. And then lastly, because we are called his children and because he has done all that is necessary to defeat sin and death in us and around us, we are reconciled to God and we experience the Prince of Peace for all eternity and endless shalom. And so the call here is to reflect on Jesus, to look at Jesus as the wonderful counselor. He has the best ideas and the best strategies. To the world, they look foolish. But they are brilliant in the scope of eternity. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves endlessly. And he has won the right to be the one who loves you for all of eternity. And let's enjoy him. And as the prince of peace, he reconciles us to God. Let's welcome his dominion and his rule in our life. Because he brings peace and goodness and reconciliation. But the wonder of this may not necessarily even be found in these lists of names. The wonder is also not just simply found in these titles, but in how he carries out this battle plan. How does this wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and prince of peace carry out his battle plan? Well, what's it say at the beginning? For to us a child is born. The wonder of this is that the wonderful counselor and mighty God becomes a baby. God made flesh. This baby is God with skin on. A killable God. And this reflects the wonder of his character, no doubt about it. And so the brilliant minds have understand how one wields power reflects the deepest aspects of your character. For example, Plato said this, the full measure of a person is whatever they do when they have power. And Abraham Lincoln put it this way. He said, nearly all people can handle some forms of adversity, but you want to test, you want to test a person and know their character, then give them power. What do you do with power? Let me ask you this. What does the living God do with power? What does a warrior God do with power? Do you see the wonder of the character of our creator God who enters into darkness as a baby? And it's here I want you to pause and wonder with me. Find another religious leader in the history of the world who uses his power to do this. The incarnation is the claim that God has become flesh. That full God became fully a man. Which means this. That the very one who holds together the atoms of the hammer that will slam nails into his hands. That this is this God who says, I will hold together the spit that they will throw at me to shame me in my, my abuse. 
Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this, he upholds the universe by the word of his power and he upholds the very things that will destroy him. And why? Why does he become a zygote, a fetus, an infant? Why? Because he knows there is no answer to the problem of our darkness and our death and our sin, but the death of one who will take our sin and all that darkness upon himself, and he enters into death with it, and he deals with it once and for all. Only God can do that. No mere man could do that. And yet a man had to do it, a perfect representative for us. So here's the picture that Isaiah 9 is giving us. On the one hand, we see the darkness of Satan's forces drawing up. All the tyrants and the big shots of Assyria and all of history with their armies and their propaganda and their saber rattling and their threats. And on the one hand, and then you see God's army being led out. And his army consists of what? A child. A God who will come in weakness. And this God knows that this plan is so wise And done with such beauty and such perfection that it will defeat all the evil powers of this world. In which this child can look and say to evil, that's your best shot. However it goes down on earth, God in heaven is not making a plan B. This was plan A and he was not sweating it out. God knows how to win by being weak. God knows how to win by tying his hands behind his back. God answers the darkness and the bullies throughout the strutting throughout history by not being a bigger bully, but God does so by answering with a baby. So here's the bad news tonight. We live in a dark world, and you and I, we can't defeat it. But the good news is this. The wonder of wonders... The thing that you can ponder as you wander in a dark world is that there is a God who has entered into this world to put death to death, to put evil to death. And he has done it himself in the foolishness of weakness, through the foolishness of a cross. This is a God who is glorious. And so we sing what? Glory, glory to such a king. Let's pray. And as we pray, we're going to sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing here in just a moment. Then we're going to sing Silent Nights and we're going to turn the lights out. And we're going to reflect on the beautiful truth that there is a small glimmer that we can look to. A light that we can reflect on as we wander through a world of darkness. Lord, I pray that we would get quiet in the way that we need to. Lord, there's going to be some parents screwing things together tonight, and they're going to be sweating it out. And perhaps they're going to get up too early tomorrow. Lord, would you get us up early enough to reflect in silence before the bustle of the day? Lord, would we get quiet even now as we sing before we get uproariously loud by singing to you? Would we get quiet and reflect on the hope that we have in Jesus? That we would name the things in our life that are dark and that are deep and that are hard and that are deathly. And then we point at them and say, because of what Jesus did, 
It's there. It's there that the light is going to come. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us a light that we can reflect on. Put it in front of our faces where the darkness of this world seems to invade with endlessly and without ceasing. Lord, would we preach and teach and talk to ourselves? Would we shine the light right in front of our eyes so that we can see one step in front of the other? Looking to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who goes before us. Glory, glory to you, Lord. We come to sing and praise you. Would you hear our worship now? Amen.